Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Calibration is defined as a comparison of two measurements, one uh, of a known magnitude or, or a known correctness set with one device, another that is similar, uh, made a by a similar degree, but measured against the first. The first device is called the standard. The second is called the test. The test instrument. The one under test. Well, we come back today to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and Paul is doing something of a calibration, recalibrating in the minds of these believers and in the minds of this church their expectations of their ministers. He's recalibrating their thinking. He's calling them to test against the correct standard all the various ideas and all the various ways that they've evaluated their pastors, their ministers, their elders, their leaders in days gone by. He's trying to get them to test what their expectations are against the true, the correct measure of what a minister is. You may remember as we've gone through this that they've had this controversy over and over again trying to measure their ministers by all the wrong standards, essentially by worldly standards. Paul tells them, in fact, in verse 6 of chapter 4, I applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written so that you wouldn't be puffed up in favor of one against another. In other words, they have established all kinds of ways of thinking about their pastors, their elders or ministers that are outside of what God's written. They're outside of the Scripture. They're beyond the boundaries of God's own standard. And so he's writing to them in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 4 to put that back in the right place, to tell them exactly how they are to think, exactly how they are to appraise exactly how they are to evaluate their pastors. And this is what he says in verse 1 of that chapter. Now this is how you should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they should be found trustworthy. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. It's pretty straightforward what he's saying here. This is how you should think of us. This is exactly the way that you should think of a pastor. This is exactly how you should appraise them. This is exactly how you should evaluate them. Paul's giving us a number of principles here for understanding how we should properly appraise our pastors. A number of principles for how you should properly evaluate those men who teach and lead and guide you in the church. And how is that? How exactly should we go about that? Well, Paul gives us four principles here. The first one relates to the role 
of a pastor, which is in verse 1. This is how you should think of us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. He uses two different words basically referring to slaves here. And it's not hard to understand that in the Roman society, which about half of it was made up of slaves, fulfilling all kinds of roles, uh, having all kinds of of responsibilities and holding all kinds of ranks, it would not surprise us to learn that there are a number of words in the Greek language that were developed to express all these different roles. You had things like doulos and diakonos and therapon, words which we're somewhat familiar with, especially if you know a little Greek. And then you have the two words that Paul uses here, huperetes, and oikonomos. We don't want to get too caught up in the particular definitions of these words because that's not really necessarily the point. They, in themselves, don't give us the full picture. The bottom line is that what Paul's saying here is we're slaves of Christ. We're slaves of Him. We're serving Him. That's first and foremost the way you need to think about us. The first word he uses Huperetes, it's used a number of times in the New Testament. It's often translated, most often translated, guard or officer. In fact, in the Gospel of John, it's used over and over again to talk about the temple guards. That's the way it's translated. It basically describes someone who is, who is a person under authority. They aren't running the show. They're not calling the shots. They're not the ones who are making the rules. They're not the ones who own the place. Translated sometimes to speak of officers of the Sanhedrin. It's translated sometimes to speak about attendants of a king. So these are, these are basically people under authority. That's the thrust of the word. They're slaves carrying out the will and the desires of the one who's over them. Paul, of course, is referring to himself and Apollos and Cephas, but by extension, every other minister who's called in the ministry of God. We are here, he says, primarily serving Christ. Primarily doing His bidding. Primarily here to please Him, he says. In fact, if you remember from our study of Galatians, Paul essentially drives home this point there in Galatians chapter 1. He says in Galatians 1, Am I now seeking the approval of man, verse 10, or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be, he says, a servant of Christ. That's the point. Everything I do... Everything we do, everything any true minister of God does, he does not in the service of man, but in the service of Christ. Now, don't get that wrong. It's not to say that the service of man has no part of it. What it emphasizes is that to rightly serve people, you must rightly serve Christ above everything else. In other words, you're not to think of your pastor, you're not to think of your preacher, your elder, your leader, as someone here who's primarily here to serve you. You may think that they're supposed to do that, that they're supposed to be there primarily to meet your every felt need. Whatever you personally are, are struggling with, that is their primary task, you may think. 
You may think that your pastors and your leaders are there to be your personal cheerleaders or your personal counselors or your personal life coach or your personal chaplain in time of need. Whatever your felt needs are, that is what they're supposed to be about. But that isn't why they were given. They were given by Christ to serve His needs, first and foremost. They're servants of Christ. They're here to do His bidding. They're under His authority. Now, this has profound implications. In fact, look with me for a moment over at Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, just to show you how meaningful this is to Christ Himself. Luke 7, Jesus encounters a centurion. He encounters a Roman soldier of rank. It says in verse 1, after he had finished all these sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He's worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he's one who's built for us a synagogue. Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to ask uh, to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and my servant do this, and he does this. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. Now you understand, there are very few things we're ever told that Jesus marveled at. I mean, some people are not easily surprised, right? Some people are not easily amazed. I think Christ would have to be the pinnacle of that definition. I remember one time going to uh, a Chinese acrobat, a Chinese ballet. We were in the city of Dalian, and some people said, hey, you know, come on, we got, a, we got this show, and it's over here. And, you know, I was kind of tired. My wife was with me. We were kind of tired, and we weren't, we weren't really eager to do this. And they kind of dragged us into this crowded auditorium. There's a lot of people, and it was hot, and, you know, there were smells. You know, there was all kinds of stuff that you know, just made me not very eager for the show. But then the lights came on and these acrobats came out. And I remember, I mean, it was the most amazing thing. I was captivated. I mean, I was glued. I wanted more. The thing went on for about an hour. It wasn't enough. I mean, they were driving through rings and hoops and swinging. And and I just thought, man, I would have paid hundreds of dollars to see this in the States. I mean, it was just shocking to me. That's really what this word is trying to convey. This is shocking to our Savior. He's amazed at what he sees. What does he see? He sees a man who recognizes authority. 
He sees a man who understands authority. Jesus marveled at him and turned to the crowd and said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. This is a man who understood the authority of Christ. He didn't question it. He didn't rebel against it. He didn't have any qualms with it. He understood it and immediately submitted himself in every way to it. All this meant for him was he didn't presume upon the authority of Christ. He didn't make unjust demands. He understood his place. At the same time, because he understood the authority of Christ, he was able to trust Christ. He was able to understand when Christ could do things. This is something the Jews never understood. This is something the Jews had always rebelled against. That's what Jesus says when He says, I haven't found that faith like this in all of Israel. They, in fact, repeatedly rebelled against the authority of Christ. One time, Matthew 21 says, Jesus entered the temple and the chief priests and the elders of the people came to Him while He was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? This was their attitude. Who are you? Who are you to be saying all these things and making all these demands? Much of the Gospels, as a matter of fact, are simply a struggle between Jesus, His obvious display of authority, and the Jews and their refusal to acknowledge His authority and His Lordship. This is always a struggle with unbelievers. They always seek some further level of the verification of God or the verification of Christ to claim such authority over their lives. You go to them and they say, this is what God demands of you. This is what God's Word demands of you. And they say, prove it. Prove it. Show me something else. Show me more proof. They're always trying to make some excuse. They're always trying to, to push off on God some reason, some explanation why they don't have to obey or why they shouldn't obey yet. This is always the problem with Israel. They fail to acknowledge the power of God. They fail to acknowledge the authority of God. And so therefore they fail to trust God. The psalmist declared, Psalm 20, I know the Lord saves His anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with saving strength of his right hand. Some boast in chariots, some in horses. We will boast in the name of the Lord our God. This is someone who understands authority. Someone who brings himself under authority, submits to authority, trusts in authority. Sadly, Isaiah in his own day would lament. He says, woe to those who got out of Egypt for help. Who rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many, in horsemen because they're very strong. They do not look to the Holy One of Israel. They do not seek the Lord. This was Israel, you understand? They had the God of all authority over them. They had the God of all power, the God of all might, and they would not look to Him. They would not trust in Him. They would not recognize His power. They would not recognize His authority. This was the struggle. This is what Christ meant when He says, I haven't seen Israel. I haven't seen this kind of faith in all of Israel. 
There's a refusal to acknowledge. There's a refusal to trust. There's a refusal to come under and submit to. But one of the things that Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, he's saying to his listeners, one of the things that marks a true believer, one of the things that marks a true pastor, is that he recognizes and acknowledges the authority of God. He recognizes, he acknowledges the lordship of Christ. He gladly submits to, he does not presume upon, he places himself under that authority. As a matter of fact, go back to 1 Corinthians. Uh, that, is, that is really what the word here is saying. Huperetes is the word. It literally means someone who aligns themselves under, someone who places themselves under, there's someone who puts himself under authority. They're a slave of Christ. They're not out there trying to, to dictate their own demands, buck against what he's doing. They're not tracing the steps of Israel. They're someone who gladly places himself under the authority of Christ. Along with that, Paul uses a second word for slave here. It's the word oikonomos, oikonomos, excuse me. It's from a word which we, we get economy, oikonomos. Originally, it was someone who was assigned the task in, in someone's home of handing out tools and handing out supplies to the other workers on a state. It soon, it soon began to be applied to anyone who was entrusted with responsibility so that you actually had slaves in the Roman Empire who would be given the management of an entire household, sometimes even managing books and finances, and in some cases managing an entire estate. You would have people who would leave, they would depart the country, and for a year, two years at a time, they would leave and entrust their entire estate to a slave. Someone who had proven themselves faithful and trustworthy. This was an oikonomos. This was a, a steward. They supervised the property, they supervised the fields, they supervised the finance, the food, and all the other servants on behalf of the master. Paul's saying, this is the way you need to think about us. This is the way you need to think about us. We are entrusted with something that is of particular value to our master, and we are beholden to His desires, to His will, to His direction. And we are to protect and keep what we have been entrusted with. Which, Paul says, there in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, is the mysteries of God, it is the truth, it is the revealed truth. This is essentially what a mystery means. Remember back in chapter 2, verse 7, Paul had talked about this when he said, we impart to you a secret and hidden wisdom. Literally, in the Greek, that is the, the wisdom of God in a mystery. The wisdom of God in a mystery, which God decreed before the ages for our glory, which he says in verse 9, eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard, hasn't entered in the heart of man. It doesn't originate with anything from man. It is something that was previously 
hidden, that's the mysterious part of it, but is now revealed. It is all the truth that was contained in the gospel, meaning it's no longer mysterious. It wasn't given to previous generations. It was kept hidden from them, but now it's been revealed to us. And so we ought to understand the great privilege to having it. This is New Testament truth. This is the mysteries of God. This is the gospel. It's precious. It's to be handled accordingly with great care. So Paul says, this is who we are. You need to understand that. We're not your servant. We're not servants of any man. We're not here to please man. We're here to please God. And we're here entrusted with something that He gave us, and we're to guard it the way that He gave it to us. Very similar to what Paul says. He uses the same word oikonomos in First Corinthians, excuse me, in Colossians 1, verse 25. Speaking of his ministry within the church, he says, I became a minister according to the oikonomos, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me to make the word of God fully known. To preach the whole counsel of God. So we understand that godly and effective ministers live under this burden. They can't escape this sense of stewardship. They're always, day by day, filled with the knowledge of responsibility that they have to please Christ above everything else. They have to handle His Word accordingly as a stewardship entrusted to them. In fact, this is what really effective ministers do. They aren't wrapped up with the pleasure of men. They aren't wrapped up with the praise of men. They aren't wrapped up with popularity. They aren't wrapped up with all these worldly attractions. They are wrapped up with this one compelling thought. To fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God, as he says in Colossians 1.26. All of this leads naturally to the second principle on how you should evaluate your pastors then. Not only should you properly understand their role, but also their requirements. I mean, if you're thinking correctly about your ministers, then you will think correctly about the chief requirement. If you're thinking of them primarily as men under authority, men given responsibility, then you will evaluate them primarily according to their faithfulness. That's what Paul says in verse 2. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. It's the primary requirement of a steward, a slave under authority, that they be found trustworthy. All of this is in contrast to the way the Corinthians wanted to think of their ministers. It's all in contrast to everything Paul has said in the first three chapters, the way that they wanted to evaluate their ministers. They wanted to evaluate them in terms of worldly success, in terms of their personal charisma, in terms of their personal rhetorical skill, in terms of their success and their popularity, and all of those things. In terms of their worldly wisdom, as he was talking about back in chapter 3, verse 18. What Paul's telling them here is that the necessary thing for a minister of Christ, a servant of Christ, isn't that he be creative, it isn't that he be innovative, it's that he be faithful. This is the way you need to think about ministers. This is the way you need to evaluate pastors. 
they're not primarily called to produce new ideas for new times, cutting-edge strategies to keep pace with culture. He's required to take what was given to him and pass it down faithfully. 2 Timothy 2.2, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That is the primary job description of a pastor. These Corinthians apparently had a hard time thinking of their ministers that way. They were going beyond what is written. They didn't see their pastors primarily as protectors of a sacred trust. They were looking at them more as originators, creators of new ideas, new truths, composers, authors of of, of a new narrative of life. They wanted them to compete on the world stage with all the key thinkers and rhetoricians, all the sophists of their day. Paul says that is the exact opposite of what we are. We don't invent anything, we don't compose anything, we don't really author anything, we just pass down something. All we do is take what is revealed and deliver it. All we do is take what is revealed and convey it, communicate it. As he said back in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, not with eloquent words of wisdom, not with the brilliance and cleverness of of human rhetoric, not with all the creativity and popularity and initiative and success that you would maybe come to expect from the glamorous. What is required, he says, is faithfulness. Over and over again, when you read pastoral epistles, when you read instructions to pastors, this is what you find. First Timothy, oh, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. He says it in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says it in 1 Timothy chapter 6. It brackets the whole book. Guard what has been entrusted to you. Avoid all the other empty worldly chatter, he says. Look with me at Matthew chapter 24 for a second. This is a compelling passage as well. Matthew 24 and verse 45. This is Jesus talking about His own second coming. This is what He's saying He's going to be looking for. Who then is the faithful and wise servant? Matthew 24, verse 45. Who's the faithful and wise servant? Whom His Master has set over His household to give them their food at the proper time. You see the same image. He's an oikonomos. Blessed, he says, is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. He will find him, in other words, doing exactly what he's been commanded to do. He will find him dispensing the master's goods to the master's servants as the master commanded. When the Lord returns, the only absolute requirement from which he'll judge his servants is their faithfulness. Were they true to the task He gave them? Not all the other tasks that they might want to add for their own pleasure, enjoyment, popularity. 
This takes us to the third principle for properly evaluating, properly appraising your pastors, a third way to think of them, and that is of their reckoning. Think of them as those who will face a judgment. Think of them who have a burden on their hearts and on their minds, who have to live constantly under that as those who will give an account. In fact, Paul says this one time, that you need to, excuse me, I'm sorry, not Paul. Didn't mean to say any kind of uh, subliminal slip there. The writer of Hebrews says this, Hebrews 13. That you don't need to add burdens to your pastor. They're already, he says, those who have to deal daily with the burden that they will one day give an account for those entrusted to their souls. Hebrews 13. Pastors will face a reckoning. Here's Paul building methodically on his argument. If we're slaves under the authority of another, if we're trusted with something precious to administer, if we're primarily judged by our faithfulness, then it only follows that we would not take much into consideration worldly judgment, worldly reckoning. He says to them, look, it's a very small thing that I should be judged, that I should be evaluated by you. The word is a word for micros, obviously from which we get microscope. It It is infinitesimally small to me what you think of me. All this in contrast to the Corinthians who valued highly the judgments of men. Paul simply saying, we do not. And for the Corinthians, this is what it was all about. Back in chapter 3, verse 18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone thinks that he's wise in this age, that's what they wanted to think about themselves. They wanted to think about themselves as being wise in the worldly age. They wanted to evaluate themselves that way. It was all, all about being considered wise in their eyes. In fact, Paul will go down. He'll go down in... Verse 9 of chapter 4, talking about how the apostles have been presented. I'm sorry, in verse 10 of chapter 4, We're fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We're weak, but you're strong. We're, you're, you're held in honor, but we are in dishonor, disrepute. This is the way they wanted to be evaluated. Strong, wise, honorable, esteemed. And so he tells them, Look, your standards of measuring me are so insignificant, I couldn't even describe them. They're microscopic. Now, don't mistake this, as one person said, for thick-skinned indifference to the needs of others. This is the same Apostle Paul who will come back in chapter 9 and say, look, I've made myself all things to all men so that I might by all means save some. He was sensitive. He was sensitive to the, to the hang-ups. He was sensitive to the weaknesses. He was sensitive to the immaturities of others. He thought about, and he thought about deeply what other people thought of him. But he's talking about in the final evaluation, that's not what matters. It's not what matters. Unless you think 
this is the prideful, egotistical, smug, self-absorbed individual who just goes around thinking highly of himself, he adds the next phrase, I don't even judge myself. I don't even evaluate myself. The point in all this is that no human evaluation is of any worth before God. The exact opposite of what these guys were thinking. It was all about human evaluation. It was all about human praise. It was all about what they, what they could gain in terms of accolades, esteem. That stuff, Paul says, is meaningless. Absolutely meaningless. He even adds, look, I'm not even aware of anything against myself. He's not talking about in general. Paul has said a number of times, you know, he's, he, he buffets his own body, he says, because he, he knows the struggles of his own flesh. He's not talking about in general that he's a man who has no faults and no weaknesses here. He's talking about in the context of his ministry. He's not aware of any area of his ministry where he's been unfaithful, untrue. This is a man who, this is a man who uh, thought deeply about his ministry, and he was dedicated to the Lord. He walked every way, every day, in step with what the Lord wanted him to do. But even though he wasn't conscious of anything that was lacking in his own ministry, it still wasn't the final authority. If you are a servant, if you are a slave to someone else, if you understand their authority, then you know it is their judgment, their reckoning that matters. They set the standard. They declare the faithful. This is what the Corinthians needed to understand. This is the proper way for them to think about their pastor. They're here to give a reckoning to God, not to men. And ultimately leads to our fourth principle, the evaluating, the appraising of the pastor is his reward. Paul says, therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, in verse 5, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and disclose the purposes of the heart, then each will receive his commendation from God. I mean, he's saying to them, basically, look, because you're merely human, you couldn't even make a right judgment anyway. Stop trying to think, stop trying to rank one man above another based on what is outwardly visible. Stop trying to evaluate people based on what is outwardly visible. This is really all about the coming judgment of God. The coming time when when He returns and He will bring to light what is hidden in the darkness and what is undisclosed in the purposes of a man's heart. And Paul tells them, you need to think rightly about who we are and you need to leave that final evaluation of your pastor's ultimate work in the Lord's hands. The day of judgment. The point, by the way, isn't that you should never evaluate 
at all. There's plenty of verses that tell us to do that, right? First Corinthians, First Timothy chapter 5, you are supposed to examine an elder on the basis of two or three witnesses, and if there is corroboration in their, in their story and a man has fallen in his character, you are to rebuke him in the presence of all. In fact, even in the very next chapter, Paul will specifically say that we have the responsibility in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 5 of judging the lives of those who are in the church in regard to sin. This isn't a a call for an absolute abstinence from judgment. Romans 16 says, I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions, who create obstacles, contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them, he says, for such people do not serve the Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. So we're to evaluate who those are who are servants of Christ and who those are who are servants of their own selves, their own own appetites, their own bellies, as he says in Philippians chapter 3. What he's talking about here, though, is judging on based on outward, external factors. Not so much their faithfulness to doctrine, but the results of their ministry. The hidden things. Don't pronounce judgment before the time, but wait until the one who comes will bring all the hidden things to light. Very similar to what he said back in chapter 3. Remember he said in verse 11 of that chapter, or verse 12, If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. And it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test what sort of work each one has done. He says that in the context of other ministers. He's saying, look, you can build a structure. You can build something external, something that people can see. But it will be revealed. It will be unearthed. All the hidden things will be brought out one day on the day of judgment. This is what he's talking about in verse 5 of chapter 4. The problem with the Corinthians was they were falling into the same trap of the Pharisees who constantly sought to justify themselves by the approval of men based on all these external factors. Jesus says in John 5, I have come in my Father's name and you don't receive me. If another comes in his own name, that is his own glory, lifting up himself, he says you will receive him. And then he says this, how can you believe if you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from only God? This was the fault of the Corinthians. This is what they were falling into. They were seeking glory from one another. They were establishing themselves in their own name. A godly and faithful pastor, though, will ignore all of that. He'll ignore all the seeking of glory from one another, all the glory in the world's eyes. He understands that Jesus pronounced a woe on those for whom all the world speaks well of them. And so Paul says, look, if you're going to think rightly about us, you need to think of 
us as men who are seeking their reward from God alone. It's a small thing. What you, what any human court, really even what I think of myself. The Lord is the one who assigns for each man their lot, their plot, their field, their fruit. That's what he said over and over again. You want to think rightly about your pastors? This is the way to think of them. The primary criteria isn't all that outward visible stuff that you're normally judging them by. It is their faithfulness. It is their dedication to their master. Some of you wouldn't even know how to evaluate a pastor because you don't know the master. You come to churches, you come to religious events and you kind of compare it to whatever else goes on in your life. Is it as interesting to you as the movies? Is it as interesting to you as your club, as a day on the golf course? That's the way you evaluate the church. That's the way you think about it because that's what it's really all about. You can't properly evaluate the church. You can't evolve, properly evaluate pastors because you don't know the master. Well, today we want to give you a challenge that you wouldn't leave here still in the dark. Still yourself not ready for the judgment. Still yourself not ready to be evaluated by Him. We want to challenge you today that if you've gone all your life Searching for answers. They'll only be found in Christ. That there's a day of judgment coming. You'll face your maker. You'll face your creator. And the only way you will stand against his test is if you know Christ. If you're in Christ with all your sins forgiven. We're going to stand together, please with me and closing a word of prayer, I want to challenge you that if you don't know Christ as your Savior, that if you would take a moment, I'd love to see you after the service or one of our elders would love to see you. We'd love to share with you from the Scripture how you can know the Savior, how you can be prepared for the judgment. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful for the word that's been given to us. We're thankful for the calibration. We want to think rightly about the ministry. We want to think rightly about our ministers. Help us to do that, Lord. Help us to properly appraise our pastors, properly evaluate our elders. Help us to properly think with sober and sound-minded judgment. Because all of us, Lord, each one of us, pastor, teacher, servant, Anywhere in the church, we are all servants of you. We all must one day stand before you. We all one day will give an account. And so we be, may we be mindful of your praise above everything else. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.